Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. It is easier than at any time in our history to build a healthy diet if you know what to look for and if you're willing to take the time to prepare food. But it's also the case that it's never been easier to build an unhealthy diet as well because unhealthy uh, food is so easily available, it's so inexpensive, it's Uh, at literally every corner. And so I think that's the challenge that we face. The easily overlooked link between the foods we choose to eat and how healthy we feel. You're listening to a Humankind Special. I'm David Freudberg. It's an obvious truth that we sometimes disregard to our detriment. The fuel we put into our body, the foods we eat, have a profound impact on our health, on how we feel, on our ability to fend off disease. And while physicians are aware of the connection between diet and health, it gets surprisingly short shrift in medical school. But a growing movement among doctors is trying to place greater priority on the role of nutrition in our well-being. One attender at a recent medical conference in Boston summarized the dilemma so many of us face. I grew up on certain comfort foods that now I know maybe aren't so healthy for me, Uh, but I still like them. So what do you do? The foods we choose play a huge role in our risk of obesity, many forms of heart disease, diabetes, our susceptibility to cancer and other chronic conditions. And it's not just intake of too many foods that can cause us harm. It's also not getting enough of the foods that nature has endowed with protective anti-disease effects. Physician Sarah Rice, a family medicine doctor from Bainbridge Island, Washington, counsels patients about healthy eating. I give them a handout because I found when I would just say it out loud, it would go right through them. So I send them home with something, and I try to go over it every time I see them. And I try to just reiterate my point. What specifically are you urging them to consider? Um, The biggest thing I tell people when I have to tell them to make one lifestyle change is to increase their fruit and vegetable intake. If they cannot do anything else, to just do that. And why is that so important? It's simple, straightforward, available, and pretty easy. Not to mention delicious. Not to mention delicious. And of course, we choose what to eat in the context of the culture we live in. Dr. Mark Integli in Manchester, New Hampshire, specializes in treating children for digestive health. It's a societal issue. I'm seeing an individual within a much bigger picture 
who is pressured each and every day to make choices which are not in their best interest. And is that a product of the marketing of unhealthy foods? It's a product of the marketing. It's a product of, of uh, the way foods are manufactured, what's the cheapest, what's the most available, what's the most cost effective. Um, that's what ends up on our shelves. Um, you know, food today isn't what food was. If you look at a banana, a banana today is nothing like it was years and years ago. It's, it's a fabrication. When it comes to dietary choices, most of us put our money where our mouth is here at the grocery store checkout counter. But choosing real foods that are naturally good for us can be hard. A whole industry of diet books and videos makes a fortune catering to people who are struggling to alter the way they eat. Physician Victoria Mazes directs the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona Medical School. If you're highly motivated, it's easier to change your diet. We, we know it's hard to change the diet. Um, you know, we eat what we eat for all sorts of reasons. Um, nostalgia, uh, familiarity, uh, stress management. We just, you know, have patterns of eating that we have and have developed over time. And when you ask somebody to make significant changes, that's really, really hard. I think it's Margaret Mead who said it's easier to get a man to change his religion than his diet. So I don't want to underestimate how hard that is. And sometimes a dietary choice is a religious yeah, that, choice. That, uh, I, I certainly think that's true in 2018. <laughs> but um, I uh, usually uh, have a conversation uh, with the people I see in which I say, this is an experiment. Uh, I would like you to do an experiment for three weeks. And, and then um, often people are much more willing to entertain the idea of limiting their diet in some way. If they feel profoundly better after three weeks, they're often much more ready and willing to make it a longer-term change. Joining Dr. Mazes and me at the Nutrition and Health Conference was physician Andrew Weil, best-selling author and professor of medicine at the University of Arizona Medical School. You've issued pretty stern warnings about our modern tendency to consume processed and fast foods, which are heavily advertised and hugely profitable for the food industry. Could you tell us which these foods are and why you're so concerned about them? I think it's almost everything in the middle of the supermarket. You know, the good stuff is around the edges. Uh, it's all the fresh, the fresh produce, fresh foods. But, you know, it's all of the chips, snacks, cookies, breads, pastries, all of that stuff that people are eating today. It's been said that our great-grandparents wouldn't recognize as food what most of us eat today. Uh, so most of what people are eating is food that's been made by somebody else. And it's often... As opposed to by nature? As opposed to by nature or, and, and cooked from scratch in the home. Now, when I grew up in the 1950s, uh, we had at least two meals a day that were cooked from scratch. And even though we didn't know a lot about nutritional, uh, nutrition and health as we do today and ate things that we may not consider that healthy today... Um, it was real food that was cooked from scratch. Very few people sit down to meals cooked at home today anymore. 
most people are eating food that's manufactured. And in, in general, I think it's fair to say that when we take food as nature produces it and we transform it, almost always we reduce its nutritive qualities and increase da its dangerous qualities. And you don't mean when we cook it? No. Uh, cooking, I think, is often renders food much more nutritious if it's cooked properly. But no, I, I, mean, I mean taking things out of it, out of what nature produces, adding things to it, transform, chemical transformations of elements in food and so forth. And so which of these foods with additives most uh, concern you? It's such a huge range of products. I, I think I, I would say most of the snack foods that are out there. They're cheap, unhealthy ingredients. So they're flour and sugar often uh, and salt. So take a pretzel, for example. It's probably a lot of flour and salt and sugar and maybe a little oil. Uh, and um, that's a high glycemic index food. So it's going to bump up your blood sugar. It's going to increase the inflammation in your body if you have a tendency towards inflammation. Uh, it has no nutritional value, except if you're really, really hungry, it has some calories, it has some fuel, but it, it doesn't support your body's health in any way. And so many foods are just like that. They're flour, salt, oil, and um, sugar. And if I'm on a road trip in this country and I stop at a convenience store, I'm lucky if I can get uh, peanuts that don't have MSG in them. That's about the only thing I can eat. Otherwise, it's bright blue slush going around in the thing. <laughs> and uh, almost everything I pick up has ingredients that I don't eat. So it's pretty dismal. On the other hand, a few years ago I was in Italy uh, driving on the Autostradas and there's a franchise chain of rest stops. Fabulous food. I mean, fresh salads with olive oil and vinegar and, you know, wonderful real foods. I don't know why we put up with the stuff we put up with here. Potato chips, bet you can eat just one. Nobody can do that. A potato you can slice this thin makes a chip so light. So crisp, you can eat a million of them, but nobody can eat just one. A recent study found that more than half of calories Americans consume consist of ultra-processed foods. This includes soft drinks, packaged snacks, and meat products that have been reconstituted, like chicken and fish nuggets. The researchers describe these products as industrial formulations. They're not naturally occurring foods. Scott Faber of the Environmental Working Group in Washington. Oftentimes, heavily processed foods um, uh, have been designed um, by scientists to be incredibly delicious by dialing up or dialing down, uh, as the case may be, the salt, sugar, and fat, um, and leave out some of those critical nutrients that you need to be healthy, to live a healthy life. And those taste bud engineers have been spectacularly successful in developing profitable products for the food industry that employs them. That is one of the sort of challenges with processed food is it's, it's convenient, it's affordable, uh, it doesn't take much time to prepare, it usually tastes really good, but it doesn't provide the same nutritional outcomes or nutritional benefits that minimally processed or unprocessed fruits, vegetables, nuts, and so on might provide to the, to the body. That can be fresh, it can also be frozen foods, but we want to add more of those minimally processed or unprocessed foods to our diet so that we get more of the nutrients our bodies need. Simple as that sounds, um, it, is, it is hard in, the, in our busy lives to make time to make a salad or to make something that might include, incorporate more of the things that we, we know are, are good for our bodies. 
Salads offer an easy-to-make bounty of vegetables, especially when they include nutrient-rich, dark, leafy greens like spinach and kale along with other veggies. Pasta or rice dishes and soups are additional ways to work in super-healthy vegetables like carrots or broccoli or cauliflower. Dr. Andrew Weil. Fruits and vegetables are the major sources of antioxidants and protective phytonutrients in our diet, and these are plant chemicals of plant origins that are protective of our health. Scientists have identified more than 25,000 phytonutrients found in plant foods. They help you prevent disease and keep the body working properly. That's one reason why the current federal dietary guidelines for Americans recommend that most of us eat three to four servings of vegetables a day and two to three servings of fruit, in addition to beans and whole grains. But the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported recently that just one in 10 Americans is actually eating enough of these foods. A problem is that fruits and vegetables are expensive. Uh, we subsidize commodity crops like corn and soy, which is why high fructose corn syrup and refined soybean oil are cheap and universally present in, in junk food. We don't subsidize fruits and vegetables, so they're out of the reach of many people who are poor in this country. Hence uh, food deserts. Absolutely. Uh, now, I make a distinction between fruits and vegetables because fruits are sugar sources, and I don't think you want to eat fruits with abandon, and you want to learn which fruits are lower in glycemic load, like berries, for example, and apples and cherries, as opposed to tropical fruits and watermelon and grapes. But vegetables, I find that a problem is that many people don't know how to prepare them, or they say it's too much trouble or too much time, and they don't know how to, what to do with them. They find boiled vegetables to be bland. Right. I hated a lot of vegetables growing up because I'd never had them prepared properly. You know, all the broccoli I got was yellow-green and mushy. mushy. <laughs> uh, Brussels sprouts were cooked to death and smelled horrible. Uh, you know, same with beets. And I mean, I remember I mean, many institutional cafeterias that I ate in, uh, including at Harvard Medical School, where the vegetables were just horrible. So people have kind of been turned off by their experience with foods not well enough prepared. Yeah. The other thing I want to say, uh, in addition to antioxidants, is um, minerals. You know, vegetables are your best source of minerals in the diet. Um, we know that in the United States, people, most people don't get enough potassium, they don't get enough magnesium, and this could be remedied by eating enough vegetables. Um, I know I crave vegetables. Mm -hmm. I really uh, crave uh, salads. I crave uh, uh, well-prepared uh, roasted vegetables. Um, and um, people haven't been taught to cook in general. And cooking vegetables is maybe a little harder than cooking a steak. You know, you put salt and pepper and you put it on the grill and it's probably going to be edible and then you may have some Worcestershire sauce or something like that that you could add to it. Um, and I do think there's a little bit more knowledge required to uh, prepare vegetables in a tasty way. Uh, but it's very, very learnable. If we do adjust our food preparation habits to incorporate more vegetables and fruits for health, is there not also a risk of harmful effects from pesticides and other chemicals used in crops that are grown non-organically? Physician Ali Cohen, based in Princeton, New Jersey. 
I work with um, many populations, um, not just people who can afford organics. I work um, in socioeconomically challenged communities, um, mothers and families that do not have access or finances or even the knowledge regarding some of these choices. So I actually try to make sure that people have options other than organics. Um, I certainly think that that's the best way to go if you can do that. And there's even frozen organics now that are cheaper than fresh organics that are just as good, you know, nutrient-wise. Um, but I, I also recommend people um, looking into other resources like environmental working groups, Dirty Dozen, Clean 15, which is a wonderful resource um, which shows, you know, yearly, it's an annual um, evaluation of um, conventional, which means non-organic produce, um, and whether or not they have the greatest amount of pesticide residues versus the least amount. Um, and so that, not, that list changes up every year, but generally carries some of the same, such as strawberries and spinach, or tend to be the highest in terms of the most residues um, tested yearly. Um, so that's one option for people who can't afford or have no access to organics. They can certainly go off that list. Um, you can talk to farmers and find out what their personal practices are, even if they're not organic. Um, you can grow your own food, and then also you can wash your produce in a way that helps to reduce those residues using, say, one part vinegar to three parts clean, warm water um, and agitating that produce. You can really take a decent amount of um, residues off. Um, if you look at the water, you can see that. Exploring an age-old theme that too few of us are paying enough attention to, the importance of a healthy diet to maintaining our general well-being. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to obtain an audio download or CD of this segment, Diet and Health, please visit humanmedia.org. While the fresh food movement is gaining appeal among many Americans, processed fast food generates about $200 billion a year, served at more than 200,000 fast food restaurants. And that's not by accident. Dr. Andrew Weil. There's a history of Americans being told that manufactured food was somehow better for them. Uh, you know, I think this happened in the 1950s, 1960s, when a number of these, these processed foods came on the market. They were seen as being modern and up-to-date, and as well as labor-saving. And talk about easy. Well, she just pops heavy turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven-ready in individual heat-and-serve trays. You just heat and serve, and you serve big and hearty with grand giblet gravy. Mm. And garden fresh peas with more butter. Mm. Mother yeah. Murphy, luck. If you look at fast food in particular, it is remarkable to me that when you put American fast food down anywhere in the world, people gravitate toward it. I did a lot of research on healthy aging in Okinawa. Okinawa has some of the, you know, has the highest longevity in the world and one of the most interesting varied diets there, a great profusion of land vegetables, sea vegetables, uh, fish, all sorts of things. 
Uh, in the years that I made a number of visits to Okinawa over about seven years, and in that time, Okinawan longevity plummeted, especially among men, and it was attributed entirely to the rapid popularity of American-type fast food. Something in the combination of fat, salt, and crunch, which purveyors of fast food apparently have mastered, seem to carry widespread appeal, even when served up in ways that can damage our health. Another issue which is often not discussed is that over the past 50, 70 years, uh, the taste of food has declined as we, as a result of uh, dependence in agriculture on very limited number of varieties, like the red delicious apple, for example, or breeding of chickens for uh, rapid weight gain at the expense of flavor. And in response to this loss of flavor in food, there has grown up a multi-billion dollar industry in flavor additives. Uh, and these are in everything. And we don't know, some of these chemicals are natural, some of them are synthetic, some are semi-synthetic, but we really know nothing about their effects. Uh, alone or in combination. They're not listed on labels. They're just concealed under the general heading, you know, flavors and spices. Um, but they could have very profound effects on physiology. They may be one of the drivers of obesity in America. And our national weight problem poses a serious public health concern. According to the CDC, 93 million Americans, or about 4 in 10, are obese. Health consequences can include heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and certain kinds of cancer. The estimated annual medical cost to the United States is $147 billion. There's lots of reasons for why America became an obese nation. Susan Roberts, born in Britain, is a senior scientist at Tufts University, where she serves as professor of nutrition and professor of psychiatry. You know, we have changing societal norms, we have changes in food production, we have all kinds of changes. It's not, you know, only the food industry's fault, if my, in my opinion. But the fact is today we have got an, a toxic food environment where we can eat any time, overeating is fun, there's just a surfeit of unhealthy food. And when food is in front of people and excessively available, they eat it. You know, just in the moment that food attracts you, you get a neurological response to seeing the food and you find yourself hungry or unsatisfied and you have that food, you gain weight and then you gain more weight. And over time, that weight gain changes your metabolism um, to, to basically protect the obese state. You get insulin resistance, which means your hunger is a more intense experience. You have to eat when you need to eat. And so once you've gained a lot of weight, healthy food is just not appealing. And, not and, as satisfying? Right. You're less, it's less satisfying. It's less appealing. You will gravitate towards the unhealthy, high-calorie, refined choices that maintain the obese state. So it becomes a very negative cycle. Professor Roberts directs the Energy Metabolism Laboratory at Tufts. They study our eating behaviors to help people manage their weight in sustainable ways. I think that because America has been obese for so long, you can't just point fingers and say it's the marketing, it's the food industry. We as a culture have kind of imbibed the, the obesogenic environment as part of our culture. I mean, people today... Sorry, did you say obesogenic? Yeah. I don't um, think I've ever heard that word. A new fad term in nutrition. Um, but so, you know, people are growing up in families where the parents are obese, the kids have been fed obese 
you know, promoting food all their childhood, they look on those foods as being normal food as opposed to occasional treats that you would have twice a year at Thanksgiving and, you know, July 4th or something like that. So it's not just that the environment is toxic today, the culture is toxic. We put a quarter pounder together the way you like it, thick and meaty, a big juicy hamburger you can really sink your teeth into. Break away for the fan's favorite. We're cooking one just for you. That makes it very hard for an individual who wants to help themselves. You know, how do they do it? They're surrounded by other people who think that it's fun to go out and eat 2,000 calories in the evening, when in fact that's more than a whole day's calories for many women. And then they're going to want breakfast the next morning because they're hungry again. Um, so I think we have to stop just blaming the food industry and the toxic food environment and accept that this is a cultural shift that needs to happen as well. that our intake of a sound diet is improved with less eating out in restaurants or fast food joints and more home cooking? Restaurants have huge portion sizes. We actually measure portions in my lab. You can get entrees that are 2,000 calories, and that doesn't include the drinks, the appetizers, the free bread, the desserts. Restaurants you know, most of them put out obscene portion sizes, which are not just twice what you need, they're often three times what you need. And the, the portion sizes served in the typical American restaurant have actually escalated quite dramatically in the last uh, couple of decades. They have, they have. And, you know, it's a really toxic problem because people eat out a lot. And so those portion sizes come to seem normal. They influence... The, uh, the portion sizes that people serve at home because those, those large things are what people are used to. Tufts University nutrition researcher Susan Roberts. The typical American eats a commercially prepared meal at a restaurant or delivered to home four or five times per week, which is a lot. And on average, that's about $13 per meal. Scott Faber of the Environmental Working Group. That shift has just occurred in the last 30 years. And, and I think uh, our, uh, we just aren't, we're just not alert to that because it's happened so gradually. Um, most, many of us eat out our lunch every day. Out of, when, who packs, I pack a lunch, but who packs a lunch to work? Not, not as many people as, as used to. So that's one of the big changes that um, we haven't fully taken account for. What is the name for customer, honey? Sabrina. Five minutes after the wait. Number 30, please. One big policy decision that's been made that will help address the impacts of eating away from home, of course, is now uh, calorie labeling on menus, which will now, you'll start seeing all around the country, especially for chain restaurants, um, for restaurants that have more than 20 um, uh, locations. It was a tiny provision that was included in the Affordable Care Act um, that ultimately is now in effect. That will at least force 
the you know you know consumers to start that internal narrative where they say mm, maybe if I if I if I'm getting 1,500 calories now that means I can't eat the way I might want to eat later or this has a lot of salt fat and sugar maybe I should choose the other item would last so um, some of those some of that information I think will will uh, could change certainly what people decide to eat away from home but we're probably not going to put the genie back in the bottle. Scott Faber is Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at the Environmental Working Group in Washington. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg, studio recording by Doug Sugars. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Maggie Mantis, Ken Rogers, David Cruz, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. Program support provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Diet and Health, Part 1 is Humankind Program number 264. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.